Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And I'm Lauren. That's right, everybody. For the second installment of our Women in STEM series that we're doing, this is the technology episode. And Caroline and I are thrilled to have on Lauren Vogelbaum, co-host of the House of Works podcasts, plural, tech stuff, and forward thinking. That is entirely correct. Lauren, thanks so much for coming on. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me here. Well, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about with women in tech because... The, the situation is a little bleak. Yeah, we've got some sad stories for you. We do have some sad stories, but some happy stories. Both. Yeah, because if we look at women in tech going back to the 60s, it started out all right. Yeah. yeah. Even even back to the 40s. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the first computer programmers who were working on the big old mechanical punch tape machines were women. They're a group of six of them are trying to get together and make a documentary about their experience because their story really hasn't been told. And and you know, programming at the time was was considered akin to clerical work. Um, it was considered a really a really promising field for women to be in. There was this really great quote from from one Grace Hopper, who I'll talk more about in a moment, in Cosmo around 1967, saying that programming is just like planning a dinner. You have to plan ahead and schedule everything so that it's ready when you need it. Women are naturals at computer programming. Did you know that, Caroline? Well, there you go. <laughs> no, I, I took a, like a, a coding class, and I would not have thought to compare it to dinner, to making a dinner. <laughs> But then again, when is the last time that I ever planned a dinner party? So I was about to say I'm completely terrified of making dinner and coding <laughs> both, so I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe maybe it's accurate. I wouldn't know. Well, ladies, I'm pretty good at making a casserole, so maybe I should transition so into coding. We will come over, and you can cook for us, and we will code together. Perfect. Yeah, it'll be like a like a knitting group, except with. Way more computers. Well, did we mention, though, that that Grace Hopper quote about planning dinner actually came out of none other than Cosmopolitan magazine in 1967? Because moving out of the 40s, obviously, um, when you know we, ha- we have these six women who are working on the ENIAC, but by the 1960s, computers are really starting to become more of... Uh, their own industry. There are actually fields developing around that. And there was this article in Cosmo about the quote-unquote computer girls because th- at the time it was thought that, yeah, this low-level quote-unquote clerical work would be great for women. That seems like a missed Halloween costume opportunity. Computer girls? Yeah. <laughs> so in the 1960s, though, could you say, Lauren, that Grace Hopper at the time was kind of like a Sheryl Sandberg or Marissa Meyer of her day. She was one of the leading women, a role model for other women in computing. She absolutely was. And I, I should mention that Grace Hopper, that's Rear Admiral Dr. Grace Murray Hopper to you. Um, because oh. not, not only a doctorate in mathematics, but also in the Navy rose to the rank of Rear Admiral by the end of her career. I, you know, she was the third person to work on programming um the the Mark One, the Harvard Mark One computer in the 1940s at Harvard's Kraft Laboratory, which was, I mean, it was essentially a, a pocket calculator, but a 51 foot pocket calculator, and it was really one of the first machines that could do that kind of calculation automatically. So it was a big deal. And a few years later, when electronic computers began replacing the mechanical punch tape sorts of things, 
Uh, she was on the team that developed the first binary code compiler. And, and compilers are a little bit like a translation program for computers. They help a computer and a person interacting with it. You know, it, it, it's a lot easier for, for the programmer to write in a language that isn't directly accessible to the computer. And so that compiler is, is helping translate. It's the basis for modern computing. Yeah, when I was reading about this, it, it, it sounds like such a, a basic principle of computing today. But at the time, Hopper was, has said that people's minds were so blown by the very notion that a computer could do this that when she would talk about making this compiler, people wouldn't believe her. Yeah, yeah. They were like, they were like, no, never, never. That will never happen. How could you possibly talk about that kind of thing? You know, it, it reminds me of, of stories about Ada Lovelace. And, and when Charles Babbage, this was way, way back uh, in the 1800s, I believe, he was talking to her about this idea that he had for an analytical machine. And she said, you know, that could do more than just than just computations or, or calculations. You could use math to talk to the computer and have it talk to you back in text or in pictures or in music. And everyone was like, chow! <laughs> just, you know, like if I could insert a graphic of a giant explosion, that would be what I would put right here. She was blowing people's minds because, I mean, you know, women back then... <laughs> They, they didn't think thoughts like that. Come on. And, and certainly not mathematical thoughts, because everyone knows that girls are bad at math, right? Exactly. But they are good at low-level clerical work, <laughs> which is why they were the first programmers. Yeah, until it became more masculinized. Yeah, supposedly, this and, and this, this quote that we've been talking about from that Cosmo article is um, from a really great piece published by Brenda D. Frank through Stanford University's Clayman Institute for Gender Research. Um, and it's in the article, she's describing how male programmers at the time were seeking to increase the prestige of the industry, a.k.a. to defeminize it, mm. um, which cheery. Um, you know, I mean, this was also and some of the examples that I've read from the time are just so Mad Men-esque that I can't even believe that it's a thing that really existed. Um, not that Mad Men is, I mean, you know, not a completely inaccurate, but still, I, it's just so weird to me, yeah, that, that men in the in the programming field started shutting women out by, by putting in educational requirements, um, using male networks to advertise jobs like frats and lodges, stuff like that that women wouldn't be a part of. And uh, and using personality tests that described programmers as disinterested in people and disliking activities involving close personal interaction. And hence, we have the stereotype of the antisocial male computer programmer who doesn't get out of his basement often. Right, but I mean, it sounds like uh, an incredibly literal, clear, linear, direct uh, predecessor to the culture that we're going to talk about in a little bit as far as programmers, things like that, just the overall kind of taking away the welcome mat for women. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because today so much of the conversation and the emphasis in tech that you hear over and over and over again, and not just in women-only circles, is how to get that welcome mat back. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do, what do the statistics look like, though, in terms of women who are pursuing computer science? Well, it starts out not so bad in high school, I would think. I mean, people talk about this pipeline of women in, in tech and computing and that the pipeline leads you from, you know, middle school, high school, all the way through grad school, and that it has leaps. And so it starts out not so bad. Um, 46% of AP calculus test takers were female in 2011. It's not quite as great for the computer science classes, though. 
Yeah, compared to calculus, only 19% of AP computer science test takers were women in 2011. And yeah, I'm going to be honest, an AP <laughs> computer science test sounds terrifying to me. Well, but also, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, like, I, you know, personally, I didn't grow up even thinking math or science was an option. Yeah. I mean, it didn't it didn't appeal to me. It didn't make sense to me. I was always word driven. But that's also kind of the direction that I was sort of pushed. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like even from elementary school, and I'm sure that you guys have talked about statistics surrounding this also, that 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 girls are are encouraged towards language-driven things and away from science-driven driven things most of the time. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, like all of my test scores were about even on math and language, but until I started getting, like, further on in high school and language went pachow. So, I mean, you know, I, I should say that I'm not I'm not a programmer. You know, I'm a, I'm a tech journalist, but that's certainly not being directly involved in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of being directly involved in the tech industry, it's also fascinating to see the erosion of the number of women in college who are not just expressing interest at the outset of wanting to go into computer science, but of the women who actually stick with it and complete that computer science degree. Because in the mid-80s, there were a fair number of us who were doing that. 37% of computer science undergrads were women. And we actually peaked in computer science academia in the 1980s. Coincidence that that's around the time that uh, The Wizard came out? And War Games starring Ali Sheedy. That's right. Mm-hmm. Fred Savage. Uh, and what's your name from Rilo Kiley was in, was in that movie with Fred Savage. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's crazy that like the numbers were, okay, 37% is not 95%, but it's still not too shabby considering. Yeah, as of 2010, it was only 18%. And if we are just looking at interest in majoring in comp sci, there is a 79% decline from 2000 to 2011. That's crazy. What happened? Yeah, I, mm. 79% is serious. <laughs> Well, and how that translates into actually jobby job land, if we look at the career landscape, obviously it's going to be dominated by dudes because of that. Yeah, only uh, about a quarter of professional computing occupations were held by women in the U.S. in 2011, and that is down from 36% in 1991. And if you look at high-powered positions, only 20% of chief information officer positions at Fortune 250 companies were held by women in 2012. And just to get a sense of the job breakdown within the industry, two in five web developers are women, but 78% of software developers are men. And then there's this other issue that we'll talk about a little bit more in terms of startups, because as of 2010, only 6% of venture capital-backed startups were headed by women. And then, again, not to make this the most depressing podcast ever, but even, okay, for women who have gone to college... They made it through their classes, maybe being the only female. They got their computer science degree. They got their computer job. And then we have the retention problem. Yeah, it seems like what I what I was reading about these retention issues, it seems like women are kind of suffering silently, maybe, in these kind of unwelcoming male-dominated cultures, and then leaving kind of quickly. 
or maybe even not so silently these days with blogs. I've read a lot of really angry blog posts from women who are just going like, I'm fed up with this. Never mm-hmm. mind. Never mind. I'm out. Yeah. And as a result, the Anita Borg Institute found that the cumulative quit rates of women in technology is more than double that of men. And when they look at the primary challenges that Anita Borg highlights, it's very similar to other issues that echo throughout STEM fields, such as lack of opportunities for recognition and advancement, challenges of work-life demands, um, isolation, and unconscious biases that women may be experiencing in more male-dominated workplaces. So we're going to dig, though, more into those issues, tease them apart, see whether or not these direct factors really are leading to this pipeline problem for women in tech when we come right back from a quick break. Okay, so we told you that we were going to get into some of the culture and the reasoning behind this this steep decline in, in women's interest and participation in the tech fields. People keep tossing this term around. And it is bro-grammar. Bro-gramming. What, what does a bro-grammar have to do with women? So there's this perception that um, that programmers these days are kind of stuck in the college mentality of like, yeah, we're going to get some beer and some ladies and hang out on couches and do all our programming there. And I mean, you know, not helped by the fact that like, what was that line that Clout put out at some point for, for hiring? Oh, it was terrific. It um, was want to bro down and crush some code, bro. I, I, I can't even. That's not even a thing that I can respond to. So Kamashki Savaramakrishkin, who was the first female engineer at the mobile ad startup AdMob, told Businessweek that, quote, the frat boy mentality among engineering men is a little more pronounced in the startup world than in the more mature organizations. So... Is it just, is it a startup thing? Is it just tech? Are we, or is the programmer stereotype, Lauren, do you think it's just overblown maybe? Well, uh, I, I think it's more for, for the younger startup generation than for the older. I mean, I don't think that you're going to encounter that if you go to like Yahoo or something, but, but for certainly smaller companies where part of the appeal is that you can be, you know, that you can dress casually and that you can be more yourself, that you can have silly stuff in your office and that you don't have to be so buttoned down. And, and part of that in these very dude oriented offices, it, you know, which there's nothing particularly wrong with if, if a guy starts a company and hires people and they happen to be guys. But, you know, does people have to be aware of the fact that they might be making that environment unwelcoming to people who are not exactly like them? And and I do I do think that it gets overblown in the media because bro grammar is such a great silly word to put up in a headline. And But I don't I don't think it's just like dudes hiring dudes. I mean, I also think there have been some pretty like horrifically stupid things that we've seen pop up in the media that these male programming tech, you know, app developing, software developing guys have said, and not just like in the bathroom to themselves. I mean, they've they've said it like, you know, on stage. Yeah, I think you're probably referring to an incident that happened at South by Southwest Interactive a couple years back in a presentation that was being given by this guy named Matt Van Horn. Is this what you're referring to, Caroline? That is what I'm referring to. And he even like before he gives his presentation apologizes for like, hey, guys, I'm sorry, I'm going to be sexist. Here, here it goes. LOL. That's yeah. terrific. I love it whenever Lol. anyone says that. That's great. 
Yeah, he speaks against having a certain style of interview where an entire committee like gangs up on a person, and he calls that a gangbang interview. And and not only that, he he talks about getting a job at Dig by sending bikini shots from a calendar, a hottie calendar, yeah, that he had made. Right. Well, all right. I'll give it to Van Horn that. He did apologize profusely, of course, after this happened, because there were women getting up from this presentation, actively tweeting it, live tweeting the entire thing, and leaving. And so, of course, he, you know, he puts his tail between his legs and apologizes. But I do think that maybe this programmer culture is reflective of a larger thing that we do see with startups where it's not just a job, it's a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Right. You go to the Google complex and they have food, they have laundry, they have childcare. You go to Facebook, you're expected to be there all night. That's something that Sheryl Sandberg actually talks about in Lean In where she had to kind of mentally get over the fact that she wasn't going to be, what was it, broing down and crushing code all night <laughs> with the guys because it's just... It's physically out. impossible when you're, you know, when you have a family. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so you, when you do have a lot of younger people, guy or girl, who might not have families, maybe there's more leeway for a beer guzzling, you know, yeah. fist pumping and, you culture. Know, I've, I've worked at a startup that it was a marketing startup that had a, a beer fridge. And, you know, after five o'clock, it was like beer fridge is open. Have some beers. And, you know, and no one like got crazy. Like we weren't broing down, I don't think. But <laughs> I would love to see you try to bro down. <laughs> <laughs> but Gina Trapani, who's a web and mobile app developer, says that the whole programmer thing, like you said, is a joke. Maybe it's not like an ingrained culture that every single guy programmer lives and breathes. But she says that it's a useful one to lend language to a persistent issue of tech companies with overwhelmingly male staff. She says basically that it helps women decide where not to work. And I, I think, I mean, that's that's good and that's horrible all at the same time because is that not just contributing to a decline in women's numbers at a lot of companies? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, I also think that it's just like just like any company policy, you're going to have companies that you do and don't want to work for. Mm-hmm. And it, it totally sucks, don't get me wrong, that there's this gender divide that's forcing part of this issue here. But, it, you know, it's not isolated to just sexism. Yeah, and I, I do think that it's it's a good point to remember that sexist comments and inappropriate behavior are by no means limited to Silicon Valley. It might we might hear more about it because the people who are hearing it are maybe more wired and more apt to live tweet it and in a startup culture maybe you feel more empowered to raise your hand and say that's not okay rather than if you are a tiny cog at the bottom of a very large org chart. So I do think there is some caution that needs to be taken, though, with portraying the tech industry as too bleak, because it's like if we take it in the other direction, then and we only hear terrible things, then that's not going to get girls and women involved in it. Um, but the visibility factor is so much there for guys, because the stereotype of computers is nerds, who we see on TV, in the social network. We're seeing guys at the forefront and girls sort of as set dressings every now and then. And um, this is sort of a side note, but I was reading about something called the CSI effect a couple days ago, which is how, it's a theory at least, on how the popularity of shows like CSI has led to a real-world surge 
in women in forensics. Of all the STEM fields, women dominate forensics across the board. And there was an article in New York Times a couple weeks ago asking whether or not computer science could use its own CSI effect to maybe see more like cool women doing cool things with cool computers so that girls have that visibility to change that stereotype, move it away from the programmer, which clearly is trying to overcorrect for the former stereotype of the antisocial guy who can't leave his basement and bring more women into the pop cultural computer fold. <laughs> yeah, and, and there are a few examples of that in, in pretty popular TV. I mean, um, the show the show Bones has Angela, who's an artist and a computer scientist, who, you know, granted, is also incredibly pretty and doing her thing, like, in miniskirts. But that's, I guess, what you do on television when you're in the sciences. You know, going, going back to Uhura, we all, we all love you, Lieutenant Uhura. <laughs> and um, I think that right now, and this is a larger problem with television, they all have to be incredibly pretty and kind of niche nerd at the same time. Like, you can't just be a girl who's on a computer. You have to be a geek girl. And that's another separate thing that I'm sure you guys have discussed on the show at some point. We have not done no? a geek Ooh. girl episode. Oh, no. Well, I almost don't even want to touch it because it's yeah. so it's so tricky. And Be- hot button, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like even in the real world, for the visible mentors that we see, the Marissa Myers, the Sheryl Sandbergs, etc., it's still a very constructed and careful image that they have to maintain. Oh, yeah. It's such... I feel like it's insanely tricky territory that, you know, they have to not downplay their femininity because that would be some kind of crime against femaleness if they weren't somehow, you know, projecting that, but at the same time have to show that they can be this power player. And I don't know, it's 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 weird and, and terribly unfair. Yeah, it's almost like they have to put on some sort of like official feminine woman uniform to even enter the room. You know, to to climb that tech ladder, it's like they won't just accept. It's like you have to try so hard, even harder than a man, maybe not only in your work, but in your appearance, in your wardrobe, in the things you say and how you say them. Right. Well, and on top of that, too, there's this added burden, not only of the appearance, but also uh, I have some sympathy for these incredibly successful women who really don't need my sympathy at all. But for the fact that. Since women in tech is such a high-profile issue right now, I feel like they're almost bearing up the mantle of all women and girls in tech and maybe even STEM in general. So, And, and I feel like with Marissa Meyer in particular, the Yahoo CEO, that she's very uncomfortable with that, that she just wants to do her job and do it well. Yeah, she says all the time, like, like I'm not a girl geek, I'm a geek. Can we stop asking me questions about women and me giving birth? Because that's not my job. Yeah, but at the same time, though, too, it's like, well, Marissa Meyer, you're coming up at this time. And I feel the sympathy, but at the same time, it's <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah, fair. She's, she's also said that she hasn't personally felt discriminated against as a woman in that sector, and she's certainly not the only person saying that. Um, I, I had one more small story before we move on to some of these other really big names in tech leadership. Um, there was a really great blog post that came out just this month, uh, October 2013, by a programmer named Meredith Patterson, who was talking about how she's never experienced this, this no girls allowed kind of vibe in programming, and 
also talks about how that may be due to the fact that she has autism and and that that's, you know, a separate but related personality factor of of not always cluing in on subtle social circumstances. Um, But, you know, that she hates the assumption that all women have a bad experience in tech because that's not her experience. I, I think that overall painting it as completely terrible or completely okay is is harmful either way. Yeah, and there are also stories on the smaller scale, too, of women who might have been dissatisfied with what was going on. But the exciting thing about being in tech, and I feel this even as someone who is not coding necessarily, but involved in new media, um, is that the field is so open for you to make what you want to make, kind of in the instance of the women who founded Skill Crush. Caroline, I know that you've taken some Skill Crush courses. I did, and it was actually a fantastic experience coming. You know, I had no, I had no experience in this area at all. And so taking Skill Crush classes, it's like such a, you feel like you've walked into your best friend's apartment and all of your mutual friends are over and you're just like, hey, ladies, ladies (laughs) on a couch with beer. Perfect. No, but it's yes. great because, um, and I, you know, not that I'm trying to make this into an advertisement for Skill Crush, you know, but the it's like it's so obvious from the minute you sign up, the minute you pay them, that you have a complete and total open and honest and thoughtful support group of women and some guys. There's some guys taking those classes, but um, I just feel like that's so important because I there there were some some weeks where it got a little tough. Got a little tough. There were some tough lessons, and uh, I, I think I would have just said uh, to heck with it if there hadn't been those awesome women. Because the the woman who founded it, Ada or Ada, I'm sorry, uh, you know she's she's in the videos teaching you how to code. She is this brainiac behind all of this coding stuff, and there she is in her like cute little outfit and you know rocking some code and and so it was it was really comforting and kind of awesome and it's specifically designed right to teach women mm-hmm. in particular code yeah not that they exclude dudes but it's geared specifically towards the young professional woman who thinks that she's too busy to learn how to code no that's but she can that's amazing and especially yeah i mean you know just having having those role models is so important yeah, it's so important for it, at least striving towards some kind of parity to, so that we have more than Marissa Meyer, Sheryl Sandberg, and some other exceptions to the rule to talk about because even at the top, top tiers of U.S. companies at least, the numbers of women in leadership roles tech-wise are also down in accordance with the numbers that are down for women who are even studying computer science. Yeah, if we look at uh, chief information officers, that's down to 9% in 2012 from 12% in 2010. It seems to be pretty steadily declining from just a few to even fewer. And uh, one poll, uh, 30% of 450 American tech executives said that their IT groups have no women in management. 50% agreed that women were underrepresented. Yeah, and Tara Hunt, who's the CEO of a company called Biosphere, told Forbes that the more women we see in high-profile technical roles at these companies, the more young women will be inspired to pursue a career in technology. And that visibility issue is something that comes up over and over in not just tech, but in other STEM fields. Because I do think, I think all of our experiences speak to 
the power of actually seeing, or in our cases, maybe not so much seeing women in these kinds of jobs. And another kind of factor in why we need more women in this field is because the very simple concept of like hiring like. Um, if we look at venture capital firms, people giving funding to startups, 89% of venture capitalists are men. And so, you know, I'm not saying that a man won't fund a woman's venture or vice versa, but what I'm saying is that inherent biases do exist. And so if it is this old boys club and men are helping their their bros out, you know, maybe it's time to get some more women in these fields to help each other and and to help men too. I'm I'm not trying to exclude anybody. Oh, sure, yeah, but yeah, but it's still that kind of that thing that started way back in the in the 60s of of, you know, it being kind of driven by these connections that men make in these professional organizations that women can't get into. Yeah, there's the after hours networking and then there's also too when it comes to venture capital and startups, this factor of risk taking. I think this was something Caroline we talked about in our episode on Instagram where those guys were so successful because because a lot of times it's a hallmark of dudes who are really into startup where they're also really into risk taking. And you're probably going to try a lot of different things and you are moving a lot of money around. And I think that w- women can also help themselves, too, by being braver to take on those risks. And speaking of venture capital, and this is a bit tangential, but not too long ago, there was a huge internet fallout when the guy who founded Deadspin, whose name I am forgetting right now, announced very publicly that he had raised $5 million in venture capital to start a website for women called Bustle.com. Oh, that whole thing. Yeah. And, and he was so proud of himself, and he was obviously a business guy, and I think that he was earnest in really wanting to start this. And everyone, every woman, I think, who's contributed to any kind of women's media threw up her hands But he went and got the money, though. At the end of the day, he went and got the money. And that means that there is $5 million plus out there looking for a female audience. Why did it have to be a guy who sold the idea? Ladies. (laughs) I think all three of us just have our hands up looking at each other. Because Um, I could use some $5 million. I don't know about you. Yeah. But I wonder, though, if he was... I mean, definitely his business legacy with Deadspin, which became very profitable gave him credibility for seeking out this venture capital. But when you look at who funded it, it was a lot of other guys. Mm -hmm. And so you do wonder, though, that if all three of us went to go pitch our Lady Fantastic web empire, if we would have as much success. I just wonder. Because it would be harder to find a woman to fund us. Well, you know, yeah. We'd have to start out by making this million-dollar business. And then, but how do you do do that when you're a lady in a field that doesn't really want you to? (laughs) Exactly. Well, we're going to start a PayPal account. (laughs) (laughs) But again, that's why it is good that we do have the Sheryl Sandbergs, the Marissa Myerses, (laughs) paving the way, who are, for now, maybe taking on the mantle, although, you know, they, they do have to deal with a lot of criticism. But the good news is, is that it isn't always focused on their gender. Right. Yeah. You, you'll see Marissa Meyer catching flack when she poses in what magazine was it? Was it Vogue? It was Vogue. Yes. Yeah. Um, kind of kind of sexied up um, as though she cannot be a CEO and also a woman who is a sexy lady. Um, but 
I think most of the criticism against, you know, Sheryl Sandberg or uh, Ginny Rometty, who's the CEO of IBM, people like that, is more that they're mismanaging their companies in specific ways that aren't gendered. It's kind of comforting to me that people can criticize these women as CEOs and not have to mention the fact that, P.S., they have lady bits in every single news article. I mean, you know, they always say woman and CEO and, well, you know, but that's the way that our language is structured. So it's kind of okay. Um, specifically with Sheryl Sandberg, I was really comforted when criticism of Lean In came in and a lot of it was about classism instead of sexism. I thought that was, I mean, it's still, it's terrible that classism like that was happening, but I was like, well, this is a wonderful world we're living in. No one is saying, like, shut that lady up. They were saying, like, shut that rich lady up, which is a whole different issue. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just the fact that she has the liberty to talk about the ins and outs of Facebook and, and Google, too, of how it was how it was for her sort of learning the ropes as a woman, as a wife, as a mother mm-hmm. in there. I think you're right. Definitely speaks to um, maybe some progress. That's being made. And I noticed with Apple's recent hire of the former Burberry CEO, Angela Arntz, seemed controversy-free, which was surprising to see in tech, but especially for women in tech getting big jobs. But I do wonder if it went so smoothly because she was hired on to oversee both online and in-store retail and Which is a more lady business. Exactly. Because ladies shop, you guys. We be shopping. We love shopping. Exactly. <laughs> All of us. Shoes. <laughs> Shoes. Shoes, period. And maybe a Burberry <laughs> trench. Oh. No, not at all. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she, she became the one woman among Apple's top ten senior executives. So at least she is there. And, you know, you do have the case of, like, Julie Larson-Green, who was recently hired on to be the head of Xbox. Uh, you know, she's in charge of all of the the hardware, the games, the music, the entertainment. And some of the comments that were being made mm. uh, just are not good human comments to make about humans. Well, we haven't even gotten into gaming. Yeah, gaming is a whole separate issue. Uh, b- back when we were talking numbers of programmers, and they were pretty dire, you know, like, down into the into the teens... Three percent of programmers of games are women, and 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 they and they make you know like ten thousand dollars less on average than their male count- counterparts, which I think is a higher percentage than than in other in other industries, which is ludicrous and ridiculous until you start looking at the kind of games that that most developers are making and the uh, female characters that most games include, and just the general gamer culture. If you guys want me to come back and rant a lot about Hmm. gaming culture, I can do that thing. Yeah, you have Um, an open invitation, for (laughs) sure. Because I know that we have a lot of gamers among our listeners, and women in gaming has been a requested topic. So it's definitely something we should spend an entire episode on, because there's so much there to talk about. It's a very pointy topic. I'm kind of, I just said that, and now I'm like, maybe I can change my name and move to another state, and uh, I will never have to do this. Well, in the meantime, let's close things off on a positive note, because we do have these women at the top, and we also have women like those who founded Skill Crush, who are doing things with their skills to empower other women and other girls who might not be quite yet at the level of a Sheryl Sandberg. And that's really cool. And there's a lot of conversation that's going on. There's a lot of mentorship happening and a lot of organizations that are starting up specifically to help 
fix this pipeline problem. Right. There's groups like Girls Who Code and Black Girls Who Code. And I know we've talked a lot about the U.S., but there is Little Miss Geek in the U.K. They run uh, school workshops, getting women from the industry to actually come into the schools and talk to the girls. Oh, that's awesome. Like, look at this human person who's in front of you, who is successful and happy. You can also be like her. So, I mean, that those are just, just three examples. And then on top of that, there is, it's more of a hacker kind of thing, but there's Adafruit and Fem Engineer. And finally, we referenced earlier the Anita Borg Institute for Women and Technology, which began a competition recently for, quote, Top Company for Technical Women Award, which was given in 2012, FYI, to American Express. So cool. Yeah. Uh, another interesting note, the Moore College of Art, which is a women's school, is offering starting this fall a major in game design. And as of August, seven of like 130 incoming freshmen had said that they were going to sign up for it. Awesome. Yeah. And huh, we didn't talk about salary specifically, but girls, if you were listening to this and you were considering a college major, really think about computer science because the median income is $80,000. Oof. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why there has been this push, too, for women to get into computer science, because engineering and computer sci out of the gate make so much more than the average job title. You mean more than a journalism major, Kristen? That's I I can't even imagine making more than a journalism major. (laughs) Fact, you can put vegetables in your ramen. (laughs) Ladies, I was a newspapers major. Hey, me too. So, I was, so I was, we made even less, is what you're saying. I was creative writing, so I think I win this game, actually. <laughs> High five to all of us. Let's go sign up for some skill crush classes. That's right. And uh, Lauren, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me. This has been a blast. Well, you'll definitely have to come back for a women in gaming conversation in the future. Absolutely. I would love and or hate to. <laughs> Well, we want to hear from listeners out there. Are you in computer science? Are you in any kind of coding, developing, programming, etc.? We want to hear from you. We don't care if you're a guy who crushes code or a girl who crushes code. <laughs> Send us your letters, momstuffatdiscovery.com, or you can tweet us at momstuffpodcast or find us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you. And back to our letters. Well, I've got an email here from Justina on our episode on the maestros of classical music. She writes, thanks for your podcast on women conductors. One thing you mentioned briefly was that the number of women musicians in orchestras is on the rise. But do you know why? A big part of the reason is the implementation of blind audition in music schools, conservatories, and orchestras. It turns out that when judges judge on performance only and have no knowledge of who it is that's playing, more women are selected. Who knew? So thanks, Justina. I have a letter here from a listener who would like to remain anonymous, and she wanted to offer her thoughts on women in the workforce after Kristen and I did our series on Lean In. Um, She says, I started thinking about my own profession and my experience as a professional woman. In my company, Behavior Services for Children and Adults, there may be six men, seven if you count the maintenance man. There are about 50 women. In my department, Behavior Therapist, there are no men. Our clinical director is a woman. My supervisor is a woman. Even when I was in grad school for clinical mental health counseling, there were few men. Out of 25 people in my cohort, there were three. There were more men as professors, but most of them were in the academic field, not applied services. 
The work environment is very different than any place I have worked in before. Obviously, it is very female-friendly. When planning get-togethers with coworkers, we typically think girls' nights in or pampering nights. We are also super helpful towards each other. If one of us is stressed, someone will give an encouraging word. It's really nice. On the other hand, there can be times when the group can get collectively wrapped up in kvetching sessions, I'll just say. When we de-stress, we talk and often complain. We also don't do confrontation easily. If there is an issue, it takes a long time for it to get resolved. I haven't had a chance to read Lean In, but most of your podcasts seem to focus on fields where a man is the boss or women have to compete or work with men. Have there been any studies looking at all-female workplaces? While it is fun and less intimidating to be in an all-woman workplace, it is nice every once in a while to have a guy around. And I can tell you, anonymous listener, I have worked in a majority female work environment, and I don't know that I've actually seen studies about it, though. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen many studies either. Yeah. But... Other listeners, if you've worked in an all-female workplace, I, in high school I did work in a daycare center, and that was all women um, and lots of babies. Uh, but but yeah, if other listeners can relate, send us an email. Momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send them. You can also follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and find us on Facebook. And you can find Lauren Vogelbaum over at Tech Stuff and Forward Thinking. So definitely check out her podcast as well. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And you should watch every single one of our 100 plus videos on YouTube. Yeah. There are a lot of them. YouTube.com slash stuff mom never told you. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 